Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking about an issue that I know nobody feels like discussing over the Christmas holidays, but is something I think people should be paying very close attention to. Now, I know I have a lot of listeners here from the pro-life movement around the world, uh, but today I want to be talking about some developments in Canada that are really disturbing and I, and I do not think uh, have gotten much attention, uh, certainly not the attention that it deserves. Now, of course, I'm not referring to pro-life organizations, which have been sounding the alarm on on this issue nonstop, but I do mean uh, the mainstream media. And that's the issue of of euthanasia and assisted suicide, which in Canada is is sort of referred to by a perverse acronym, Medical Aid in Dying or MAID. And they use these terms, of course, because they're trying to disguise the reality of what we're talking about, which is doctors giving lethal injections to patients. And most of you will know that Canada's Supreme Court mandated that Canada's parliament legalize euthanasia back in uh, 2015 and that the resulting euthanasia legislation, the assisted suicide legislation put forward by Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party, uh, was incredibly dangerous. It was filled with loopholes, uh, but things have consistently gotten worse. So right now, the new uh, euthanasia bill, Bill C-7, that's working its way through Canada's parliamentary system, is even more incredibly dangerous than the initial legislation, uh, because what the uh, this this new legislation, uh, Bill C seven, is doing is removing uh, the reasonably foreseeable death. Uh, standard that the initial legislation did include. So the initial legislation essentially indicated that if somebody had reasonably foreseeable death, so terminal cancer or or some other uh, fatal disease, they could then apply for 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 assisted suicide to shorten their lives further. Uh, this was challenged uh, almost immediately in court. There was people complaining that not enough people had access to assisted suicide. Uh, as we look at our spiking mental health crisis in the wake of, of COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns and all that, the idea that uh, a lack of access to suicide is the main problem is just truly egregious and truly insane. But but this is where we are now. And just to give you some details on how dangerous this bill actually is, this new law would bring us literally same-day death. Uh, the possibility to receive death on the same pers- uh, day that the person requested it. So, uh, you know, when people feel suicidal, right, this is by definition them not being in a, in a, in a coherent state of mind. And so this law really does invert everything we know about mental health and suicidal ideation. It also brings death without contemporaneous consent, uh, which is a situation where people will have their lives taken without being consulted in the moment. And one of the reasons this is so particularly dangerous is that there are people who uh, earlier on will say, if I ever find myself in these set of circumstances, then I would like, uh, you know, the doctor to give me a lethal injection. I would like to to be killed. And of course, people's mindset changes, especially when you're talking about something like this. There are people, for example, who might think, oh, if I was ever, you know, a quadriplegic in a wheelchair, um, I, I wouldn't want to live. Uh, we, we hear this as pro-lifers on the streets all the time. But if they actually, you know, went through a car accident and found themselves in that situation, their view might be very different. Under this law, um, you don't have to have a reaffirmation of that consent. And there's been one particularly horrifying situation in the Netherlands quite recently where a woman with dementia had signed a consent form earlier on, um, but she had dementia. She was a pleasant, lovely woman. She was living in a nursing home. The staff said she was was a delightful person who got a lot of joy out of life, but her family said, you know, she consented to assisted suicide uh, earlier, and so therefore we would like to proceed with this. And the doctor actually 
she had to try drug her coffee um, to trick her into getting knocked out so he could deliver her the lethal injection. It wasn't effective and she actually had to be pinned down, pinned down while the doctor gave her the lethal injection. So that is just one horrifying example of what death without contemporaneous consent could look like. And I'm not giving you, you know, a horrifying hypothetical. I'm quite literally providing you a real-world example that just worked its way through the Dutch court system. The third thing uh, that this would bring about is death without two independent witnesses, which creates countless possibilities for abuse. And again, the number of euthanasia horror stories, which we've we've recorded at LifeSite News, I've been writing about this issue for years, uh, these are... This is not saying these things could happen. It's saying these things do happen wherever euthanasia regimes take root. Uh, These abuses are inevitable. Um, There are very few guardrails as it is in Canada's euthanasia legislation. Now we're talking about a four-lane highway. It's just, it's unbelievable that in a nation where there's so little access to palliative care and where uh, mental health uh, resources are so limited and where people die simply because they they don't get the help they need on mental health issues, that this, this is the legislation we're, 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 being, uh, we're considering that we're putting forward. Um, so to discuss that issue, uh, I'm going to be talking to my colleague, Blaise Elaine, from the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Uh, Blaise Elaine has been a pro-life activist uh, for, for over a decade. Uh, and, and back in 2017, after the first uh, euthanasia bill passed here in Canada, we realized there wasn't any practical street-level apologetics, uh, a, a, an argument that didn't rely explicitly, for example, on, on, on Christian principles that we could utilize uh, when discussing euthanasia-assisted suicide with, with our peers. And we realized that many people were comfortable discussing the abortion issue because it, it seems like such a, a black-and-white issue. It's somebody being killed, uh, presumably against their will. In the case of assisted suicide, people found it much more difficult to argue because fundamentally there was the view that if these people really want to die, who are we to stop them? And even those who oppose assisted suicide had a hard time uh, actually arguing against it. And so what Blaze and I did is we spent uh, uh, six months to a year basically testing out different arguments and trying to find arguments that would be really effective in persuading people uh, to oppose assisted suicide. And we, we found a lot of success in honing arguments that would actually change people's minds on this issue in the course of about 20 minutes. And so we actually actually produced a very, very short book called A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, which you can check out at, at thebridgehead.ca. And this book is, is incredibly helpful. It's being used by Canadian Physicians for Life. Uh, it's been used by Life Training Institute in the United States. We've had phenomenal feedback. We have medical students who've told us that these arguments have, have been effective in helping them persuade their colleagues, and in one case, even their professors, uh, to change their mind on the issue. And so in the light of all of all of this, especially as people feel you know so helpful looking or helpless, pardon me, um, watching Bill C-7 go through and wondering what they can do. We wanted just to take uh, this next half hour here to discuss the arguments uh, against assisted suicide and give you some tips on how you can discuss this issue, especially as it is unfortunately once again so incredibly relevant in politics. For those of you who aren't Canadian, these arguments will still be incredibly helpful. Assisted suicide is being debated in multiple states. In Europe, it's being debated in multiple countries, most recently in Austria. And so these arguments will be helpful uh, to you no matter which country you live in. So without uh, further introduction, uh, this is my conversation with my colleague Blaise Elaine on how to discuss assisted suicide. We really do hope that you find it helpful. (laughs) 
Okay, to start off, when we were working on a guide to discussing assisted suicide, I think the, the, the light bulb moment we had when we were trying to find the best argument to help frame this for people was when we really explained to people that this was not the government just legalizing suicide and allowing everyone to have access to this right, but by virtue of making uh, a selection as to who could access the so-called right and who couldn't, they were actually drawing a line through the population and saying on one side is people whose lives are so valuable, um, you know, that we will physically prevent them from killing themselves and they get suicide prevention services. On the other side of that line, we have people whose lives are so worthless fundamentally that they not only have the right to kill themselves, but we will facilitate this and we will actually pay for it with taxpayer funds. And now, as, as we see with the new legislation, as I discussed during the intro, that that line is being moved further to encompass more people. So when you take a look at this in the context of how uh, how we discuss this issue, what, what's your main reaction? Just to reaffirm that, you know, it, it was recognizing this kind of second class citizens and this fundamental discrimination at the heart of the issue. For me, it was um, uh, Father Kevin Belgrave, who teaches moral theology at St. Augustine Seminary in Toronto. And he 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 put this he, he made this observation in a talk. He said, um, you know, our society is promoting suicide to some people and promoting suicide prevention to other people. And that be, that's become the cornerstone of the apologetics in, in the book and that we use on the streets and in conversations with people. So um, when, when the issue comes up or if I'm bringing the issue up with somebody, like I want to frame the conversation in the context of this discrimination right from the start, I think the key question of the debate is how do we decide who gets suicide assistance and who gets suicide prevention, right? Because our society wants to keep those things very different and very separate. And, you know, euthanasia, like this is about euthanasia and assisted suicide. Mm -hmm. That's a mouthful. People often uh, pick one of the two words. I used to pick euthanasia to focus on that word. And we stopped and we switched. Like the reason it's called the guide to discussing assisted suicide, even though we're also talking about euthanasia is that we need to bring that suicide issue to the forefront and the difference between suicide assistance, suicide prevention. If I'm opening a conversation with someone, I'll often, I'll often ask them, so what do you think about assisted suicide? And they'll talk about the cases they think it should be legal. And then we'll say, mm -hmm. so what do you think about suicide? And they'll talk about how it's a tragedy and we need to do more to support mental health. And then you ask the key question, okay, if somebody's suicidal, how do you decide who gets suicide assistance and who gets suicide prevention. And it brings all that tension up to the surface. It's really interesting because we noticed this early on, and I think we're probably more keenly aware of it because we work on the pro-life movement, so we're so aware of the way language is used to, to hide what we're talking about, right? Like the term pro-choice was brilliant because it wasn't about abortion. Like they're trying to make the abortion issue fundamentally not about abortion, and so it's our job to constantly drag people back to the actual issue at hand, which is abortion, right? So you always have to look for the word that they won't use. And in Canada, it's been, it's been particularly insidious the way they've dealt with the assisted suicide issue. Because I remember this, and I know you remember this as well. The debate started off about being assisted suicide, and then it was uh, medical medically assisted suicide or, you know, physician assisted suicide. Then it was medical aid and dying, and then it was just made. And you always have to look at what word do they not want 
to be saying. That's the word we should really zero in on because everybody has a negative reaction to suicide. Uh, Those who don't know somebody personally who've committed suicide, I think almost everybody listening will know somebody who's had suicidal ideation, uh, who's considered suicide, who's grappled with mental health, and whose lives would be profoundly impacted in, in, in horrifying ways if the person they know who had suicidal ideation went through with it. And there was a sort of implicit recognition that, oh, you know, people like feel feel really bad about suicide. Let's call it something else. And you notice the shift in the media coverage. I always wonder, like, who puts out the directives for the change in terminology? Because on a couple of key issues, there's almost an overnight switch. Like, over the course of a month, you see the Globe and Mail, the Winnipeg Free Press, the Vancouver Sun, the Toronto Star. They all switch to using this new terminology. Like, it's been agreed upon that we don't want to talk about it that way. Um, but getting getting back to, to the unpacking part. So when you say you bring all this tension to the surface, what are the ways in, in the conversations you're having that you highlight that this isn't... This isn't about choice. It's about us choosing who gets the choice and what that says about how we see those people. So we start by by framing it, as we've explained, you got to bring the suicide issue to the surface, because um, I think this discrimination, I think I think it's it's implicit in the way that we think, like, you know, um, uh, people think about uh, assisted suicide as if it's, you know, for uh, the elderly, the ill, like this kind of other group of people, and they just don't connect the dots in their brain with what they're already thinking about suicide. So we're framing it that way. But when we ask the question, how do you decide who gets suicide prevention, who gets suicide assistance? We found there are three possible ways to answer the question. So there's uh, what we call the split position, which is what most people in our culture hold, that Mm -hmm. Some people should get suicide assistance and some people should get suicide prevention. Uh, There's the total choice position, which is the notion that everyone should have the right to die. And then there's the pro-life position, which is that everyone should get suicide prevention. And what we found is that, uh, you know, for effective apologetics, when we want to change someone's mind, we need to, to find some common ground, something that we can work with in the conversation. And for the split position, the common ground is human equality. The split position splits human beings into two classes, and our job is to put them back together again by arguing for an equal right to suicide prevention. We can bring in all kinds of data and different arguments to to show why everyone should deserve that equal right, but that's fundamentally uh, the case. It's that people believe in equality, human equality, and equal rights. We need to show there's this unjust discrimination taking place. When it comes to the total choice position, the thing that we realized as we started talking to people that wasn't obvious to me uh, until I was getting into conversations is there's a really easy way to handle this total choice position, this notion that everyone should have a right to die. Just split it. Just find some common ground for suicide prevention. Because almost everyone believes that suicide prevention should be a thing for at least some people, right? So if we can if we can split that total choice position, get a foothold, a toehold, uh, then we bring them into that middle category and uh, then make the case for human equality. And then once we've made the case that, uh, like use the common ground of suicide prevention and human equality, then it becomes necessary to kind of articulate the pro-life position to explain a bit about what it is and what it isn't so that people can see once we rule out the other two positions, that the pro-life position um, actually makes sense. And, uh, and that's, that's how we make the case. 
One of the things I found like really insidious about this debate, and I, it it shouldn't have surprised me, and so I was, I was surprised that it surprised me because ableism is one of the most common things we run to, uh, or we we run into as as pro lifers, right? Is that when people are are say largely pro life but have exceptions, almost always, um, you know, severe disability is one of is one of their exceptions. You see this actually in, in Poland right now, like all the riots on the streets are because the Supreme Court basically ruled against eugenic abortions. They're like, no, but we have to be able to abort, you know, disabled babies or incompatible with life um, is, the, is the term that they, that they, they prefer to use. Um, it's, again, the insidious language being used. And so it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but the extent to how brazenly uh, our culture is openly in favor of people who who are who are not able to do the same things as we are kind of did shock me because it's more brazen when you take it out of the abortion context where there still might be the denial of humanity into the context where we're obviously talking about a human being um but they're like oh yeah no i think that person should be able they're very old oh they're in a wheelchair oh they're quadriplegic oh they had a severe car accident and and you know they you know they're paralyzed from the neck down like yeah no we should we should definitely allow them to kill themselves uh, or help them kill themselves and and, and that's kind of shocked me. To what extent in your conversations has the ableism sort of been a predominant feature of the pro-assisted suicide position? Yeah, so it's a very common feature and a very common like default assumption out the gate, this kind of extreme ableism. But I think the thing that we've noticed is that um, it's, it's this sort of false compassion. It's like people mm-hmm. haven't thought about the position they haven't sort of thought it through and that when we can reframe it in terms of the deadly discrimination that it is people very quickly become uncomfortable with the statements they so confidently mentioned just a minute or two ago so um you know first we have to kind of reveal that split like people say things like the motto for dying with dignity canada is it's your life it's your choice right and uh we can show that it's not about choice by bringing up suicide prevention, like, like, like we sort of, you know, tried out some classic case for suicide prevention. If it's really about choice, then suicide prevention wouldn't be a thing, right? If we're picking and choosing who's going to get the choice, then it's about discrimination. And when we get to ableism specifically, um, you know, there's a technique in the book that we call, uh, what about the wheelchair? And uh, my friend, Matthew from the university of Toronto uh, used it quite effectively in a conversation with someone. He was talking through a lot of the apologetics in the book for about 20 minutes, went through a whole bunch of the issues. And um, and the student said to him, uh, okay, yeah, but I mean, like, what if somebody's like 90 years old, they have like stage four terminal cancer and, uh, you know, and and they're, they're quadriplegic in, in, a, in a wheelchair, like, shouldn't they have the choice? Mm-hmm. And Matthew says to him, would it make a difference for you if the person wasn't in a wheelchair and the student stops and thinks about it for a second, he says, "Ah, yeah, it would, but now you're just showing me that I'm just being a total jerk. Right. And, and that was just sort of one of the shockingly blunt admissions, but I've seen that so many times in different conversations, right? It's, it's, you frame it carefully and walk somebody through it. Right. Like, what would that feel like? Like, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll often, say, you know, take two people in very similar situations, like take like a 35 year old single man. And uh, there's two of them, very similar situations in life. Everything's the same, except one of them 
is in a wheelchair and the other is not, right? And you've got the able guy, uh, the able-bodied guy who goes to his doctor, says, "Doctor, I believe I I have a right to die. I would like to die. I would like your help." And if he's not eligible, the doctor is going to say, "I'm sorry, I can't help you with that." Uh, what else can I do here? Like, why do you feel this way? What's what's going on? Is there some other, other like is there some other way that I can help? Right? But then the second guy, same situation, but in a wheelchair, goes to his doctor, says the same thing. Doctor, I believe uh, I have a right to die. I would like to die. I would like your help. And if Bill C7 passes, he's probably going to be eligible, right? And doctors, especially without any conscience rights in Ontario with effective referrals being required where a doctor has to kill the patient or find another who will, like doctor's going to say, yeah, you qualify, you're eligible, right? Like it's our society saying to someone, oh, I can understand why you might want to commit suicide, right? It's not, it's not compassionate. It's a deadly form of discrimination. Ready, ready when you are. Yeah. Right. And when we can bring that out in conversation by asking a few questions, by bringing up the contrast. So people aren't thinking about illness or disability in isolation, but they're thinking about assisting the suicide of some intention with our default for suicide prevention. And why aren't we giving people with disabilities or the elderly or people with illnesses, why aren't we giving them an equal right to suicide prevention? That gives people pause very quickly because even though many people are ableist in the beliefs they hold, very few people want to be ableist, right? So we, sh- we expose that ableism and they very quickly become uncomfortable. That's where we see a lot of people change their minds. Because you really can't, unless you hold the, the, the total choice position where everybody has access to, to assisted suicide, which very few people hold in the real world because as we we mentioned earlier everybody knows somebody who has had suicidal ideation and whose life would be you know profoundly impacted by that person following through on that especially when uh and under this new legislation you could get it the same day um it's same day same day assisted suicide is it's it's basically there's no guardrails in Canada's um new regime it's a four lane highway and the loopholes are are are, are enormous but I guess I guess I'll ask you switching from apologetics just for a minute, which I want to come back to the apologetics. I, I'd actually be interested to know, like, what's your theory on why the politicians can't see this? Because I, I, I will admit that I struggle to understand why the liberals and the NDP are so determined to make assisted suicide this accessible when all of the reports that have come out uh, since 2015 indicate that like less than 40% of people can access the palliative care that they need. Um, Like they're not even bothering to put up the pretense of giving people other options, Um, which is, it, 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 it is so egregious because it's just like paying lip service at the same time. To me, the ableism angle is just so incredibly obvious. And this is now very obviously no longer about terminal illness because they've removed the reasonable foreseeable death standard, which just basically means now that it's just calling the shots. You qualify, you don't qualify. And it's like, basically, if a doctor thinks you're worthless enough, he can, he can sign off on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've been wondering that a lot myself too. There was, um, I was recently looking into, uh, the, the kind of media mogul behind uh, Zoomer Media that owns like Classical FM and a whole bunch of TV stations. And, and he's become a huge advocate for uh, assisted suicide. Moses, uh, is the name or I think his name is, he's on the board of Dying with Dignity Canada. He's turned the Canadian Association of Retired Persons into a euthanasia advocacy organization um, 
you know, like I, I like what would what motivates uh, mm-hmm. those with dying with dignity or you know from from most of the liberals or the NDP to be so obsessed with this. I I, I turn back to uh, to Father Kevin Belgrave's analysis. Like I think there's I think there's a kind of fear of death and a fear of a loss of control over things that that motivates some of it. And 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 I think it relates to to sort of some of the ableism. It's like people aren't thinking like. Um, you know, I don't care about somebody with a disability, therefore I think they should have access. They sort of think, man, if I was in a situation like this, I might want to die. I can't imagine living like this. Mm-hmm. Who would want to live that way? Right? It's 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 almost like a it's almost like more of a personalized fear than it is a kind of judgment on the other. It ends up being a deadly judgment on the other, but I think it comes from a place of of sort of personal terror of like, oh man, like I I, I wouldn't want to uh, you know, uh I wouldn't want to live that way. It's it's our medical technology allows us to live so much longer, but, you know, often in these very medicalized environments and in a hospital. um, And uh, we don't have the same kind of cultural or religious resources for dealing with the reality of death and dying. So you've got this very kind of technical medicalized death and a whole lot of people who are afraid of death and disability. And that's, that's my best read on the situation that it's kind of like, wanting this control and freedom, even if uh, it's just a freedom to, to, to end yourself because you're just terrified of, of the unknown of facing disability or illness. The ableism angle and all that too, when you, when you talk about how, uh, you know, our society doesn't know how to deal with so many of these things anymore because we literally don't possess the intellectual framework that helps us understand these things. I was thinking a lot too about what the COVID-19 pandemic really exposed. One about how we sort of warehouse the elderly in, in criminally negligent uh, uh, facilities. And then there's also the inherent ableism in, in, in the discussions surrounding who gets vaccinations, who gets treatment. NPR uh, recently released this just absolutely blood-curdling report on doctors actually phoning care homes and, and, and asking for a DNR. Uh, people who had stated that they wanted to live because they were happy, but the doctors like well, this person's disabled, their life isn't worth so much, and he would argue with the caretakers and say like this person should have a DNR, and and in the report it discusses several people who died because basically physicians didn't think that their life was worth the medical resources, and one of one of the things that 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 is sort of transforming quite literally the face of our society is that as abortion eliminates people with disabilities, people with Down syndrome on one end of life spectrum, uh, we, we, we are less and less capable of understanding them, of learning the things that those people teach us, of understanding that the, the human experience, you know, is enormously varied. Um, and I didn't realize like, how differently our society looks when we have this sort of lethal discrimination in play until I went to Ireland prior to the the abortion referendum and saw what a country where abortion was illegal looked like because there was people with Down syndrome everywhere. Like you could actually see like these people walking down the streets and and here you're kind of like, oh, and, that, and it's usually cool because these people are like they're so happy. Right. And, you know, um, and according to the data, you know, well over 95 percent of them report being very happy with their life. So when people are talking about quality of life in, in terms of Down syndrome, they're talking about their own quality of life, not the quality of life of those people. But it was so fascinating to see that. Oh, so our, the faces of our society, what, what it looks like out on the street has been changed by the way we're doing this. And now we're seeing that lethal discrimination from one end of life get transferred to the other. In the documentary produced by Kevin Dunn in partnership with the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition, there's this one horrifying story where, where a Belgian father with a disabled daughter would have people come up to him in the streets and say, like, you know, you can 
get that taken care of, right? Like literally just remind him that he he doesn't have to have a disabled daughter if he, if, if he doesn't want to. And so with all that, people are listening to this over their holiday break. And what we the reason we wrote the book uh, is because most people have no idea how to broach this conversation. So just sort of re-summarizing once again, there's the, the equality argument. Uh, there's the, the three key positions. For people listening, how would you suggest they start a conversation? Because I do feel like right now with Bill C-7, um, for, our, for our non-Canadian listeners, uh, there's several states considering assisted suicide legislation. For our European listeners, it's a nonstop issue there. Austria uh, is now considering um, assisted suicide legislation. So how would you suggest people like start the conversation with peers, loved ones, colleagues? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it depends on, on on the context. Like, is this, you know, um, uh, as you're seeing family or friends as much as the pandemic allows or like, you know, is this coming up in a more formal context where you're talking to a stranger? But I, I think a few pieces of advice and, um, you know, there, there's so much more detail in the book, but a few big pieces of advice would be uh, center that conversation on that key question as early as possible, right? How do we decide who gets suicide prevention, who gets suicide assistance? Um, one of the other um, uh, kind of uh, uh, conversation frames um, I don't always bring this up at the start, but I often bring this in when I, when I want to kind of um, try and bring about a change in perspective is, um, is Viktor Frankl's work on meaning. And he kind of summarizes it with this formula, D equals S minus M. Despair is suffering without meaning. You know? And I think we can see this pattern everywhere. I think one of the reasons perhaps for this, uh, for this kind of, uh, ableism for this uh, meaning crisis as people face aging or illness or disability is that um, we get uh, we get our, our our meaning from sort of our achievements or our abilities in life. So when we sort of lose the ability to 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 work or or to do the things that we enjoyed, uh, you know, it leads to this kind of meaning crisis. But you know, in, in terms of conversation, um, Frankel found that uh, you know he was a Holocaust survivor and there were those who um, who would choose suicide in the camps and those who would maintain hope for their lives. And um, the difference wasn't the amount of suffering they faced, but whether or not they had a sense of meaning or purpose in the face of it. So in conversation, I'll often ask somebody like, well, let's say we have two, like whatever we're talking about. So like say two, uh, two cancer patients with a terminal prognosis, They're both in a very similar situation, um, one of them is suicidal and the other is not. What do you think would have to be different to explain that? And it kind of gets people thinking about that question themselves. And then it gives you an opportunity to kind of share Viktor Frankl's answer that the difference between hope and despair isn't the suffering. Because whether you're facing extreme suffering in a concentration camp or uh, the kind of real but less extreme suffering of, say, like a breakup or something, people can, can be... It, it can be facing suicidal despair or have hope. It's not the suffering that makes the difference. It's a question of whether or not they have a sense of meaning or purpose. And it's always possible to find meaning and purpose, even in the face of extraordinary suffering. Um, so those are kind of some big conversation frames in, in the book. We go through uh, a lot more detail in the same way when you're talking about abortion, it helps to know some of the facts of the biology of prenatal development. Uh, you know, we bring in some of the uh, social science, some of the studies on um, on people going back and forth between wanting to live and wanting to die day by day when they're living with a terminal illness, 
or uh, the real reasons that people give when they choose assisted suicide uh, in places like Oregon, uh, where you have to have a terminal condition. You know, it's not like it's rarely the pain or suffering. That's like 25% or less that that's cite a concern about pain. It's more of these questions of meaning and purpose, like being less able to, to do the things you enjoy in life. So being kind of familiar with, with, uh, with a few of those kind of key studies to share can help contextualize things and show that the kind of meaning crisis that we get if somebody's suicidal because of a breakup, it's the same if somebody's suicidal because of disability or because of an illness, right? So be able to frame it that way for people in conversation, I think is super important. Final question, just so people understand that these arguments are street tested and do work. Give us one example of a conversation you had where you moved somebody from pro-assisted suicide to opposing assisted suicide using these arguments. I think one of my favorite conversations was on the day that we submitted the manuscript for the book. Um, you know, you have that kind of moment where you've created something and you're like, is this, is this actually any good? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I, so I, 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 we submit the manuscript, I go off to do my day's work and I'm feeling that. And we spent an hour that day talking to people at Ryerson about assisted suicide and euthanasia. And I talked to the student Chad for about 20 minutes and it was a textbook conversation and the textbook was a textbook we had just written on page 11 or 12 or so. There's a, a kind of diagram that maps out the key question at the top and these three positions and how most people start with the split position. You make the cases for human equality by bringing in this argument or that argument, then they might jump the total choice. And, um, and it seems like a step backwards, but it's actually a step forward because they realize the split position is unfair. You split that total choice position you make a case for the pro-life position. And this is exactly what I did with the student chat. I just walked him through all of the basic arguments in the book in exactly the way that we outlined it in the diagram. And at the end of the conversation, he didn't say, uh, he didn't quite say that I changed his mind. He said that I gave him a lot to think about and that I may have changed his mind. He, he mm-hmm. fair enough, he needed to some more time to reflect on it, but it was just really inspiring because um, I mean, we street tested these arguments for a solid year before the book, just an hour a week, talking to people, abandoning some of them, developing new ones. And uh, they're the best arguments we could come up with because they work to actually change people's minds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, seeing someone like, like Chad at Ryerson walk through all the steps that we outlined that aren't hard to, to implement in conversation, I think is the most uh, most inspiring conversation I've had because it was a moment when I needed it the most. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thanks a lot for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Blaise Elaine of the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform and my co-author on the book, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. We hope you found this helpful. We hope you can use these arguments in your daily life. And once again, we appreciate you listening to us, especially throughout this year. Please do go over to LifeSiteNews.com, click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe to the show to get it delivered to you each week. And you can also check out past shows. We've had a lot of phenomenal guests on this year. We're really proud of some of the discussions we've been able to have. And so once again, thank you so much, and we do hope that your holiday season treats you well.